is the Evangelists Conference podcast. The Evangelists Conference is hosted by J. John, Killy John, and Andy Economides for those called to do the work of the evangelist. To find out more and to book your place for next year, visit evangelistsconference.com. The Lord be with you. Well, I was just trying to flush out the Anglicans. Uh, that didn't work, did it? Oh, dear me. Uh, let me begin with, um, we've all got our lanes. I've been absolutely blown away uh, by this conference, I have to say, absolutely blown away. Uh, the marketplace yesterday, I was just, oh my goodness, the creativity, the humility, the transparency, what God is doing. You wonder why the church is in trouble. You listen to that. Praise God for it. Praise God for it. Um, and we've been encouraged, haven't we, in our priestly calling. We've been called to be fired up. We'd had Alison with that exocet in a velvet glove, gentleness to persevere and to be bold. We've been reminded of our calling to be consistent. to watch our character, to be consecrated, and we've been reminded that it's God. Um, My lane is encouraging everyday Christians to be fruitful Monday to Saturday in the things they normally do among the people they normally meet. That's my lane. Anybody interested in encouraging Christians to be fruitful in Monday to Saturday? So uh, I'm I'm not going to try to help you be evangelists Praise the Lord, you do that fantastically well. Let me begin with my favourite, one of my favourite everyday stories. Um, before I get into what I'm really going to talk about, um, I was in a, a place called Southall. And, um, if you know where Southall is, it's one of the most multicultural bits of London. And I was invited there because the whole deanery, which for those of you who aren't Anglicans, means a collection of churches in, in an area. They were getting, they'd done a f- resource we produced called Fruitfulness on the Frontline. The whole deanery was going to get together on the Sunday morning to celebrate what uh, God had been doing and they'd asked me to come along and speak. And before I spoke, they interviewed a number of people at the front about, you know, so how, what difference it's made and so on and so forth. And one of them uh, was a little girl called Joy. And uh, Joy was uh, seven, seven years old. And um, in this very multicultural context, Joy was Dulux White. And she had long blonde hair. I couldn't see whether she had blue eyes, but that's what she was. And the vicar, Christopher Ramsey, great man of God. Uh, he's interviewing these various people. Comes to Joy and says, Joy, so Joy, you go to school and there are people there from lots of different backgrounds, aren't there? And uh, she says, yeah, 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 that's right. And he says to her, so um, how, do you, how do you talk to them about Jesus? And she says this. I ask them what they like about their God. And then I tell them what I like about mine. So just as we begin, I'd like you to turn to somebody and tell them in 30 seconds each what you like about Jesus.
Okay, let me, let me stop you. I guess we could spend the whole time doing that. And um, I love that question. I, love, I absolutely love that question. In fact, that's the question whenever I, when I do. Uh, just calm down, you three, would you? Yes. Come on. Uh, I love that question because uh, whenever we do um, evangelism, whenever I do them, I get people to answer that question, the first thing we do. And um, you get fantastic answers. And had we well enough to time, we would get amazing answers. You get the answers you expect, and they're all great. You know, the Lord is with me, the Lord is there, he's so kind, and so on and so forth. And then you get answers you don't expect. One guy says, it's a business guy, says, as the father of three daughters and the husband of one wife, I just love the way Jesus treats women. You hear things from people that you wouldn't have, maybe you've heard some things today, thought, oh, I've never thought about Jesus like that. But the thing we've learned is virtually no one has ever had that conversation with a Christian before. They've never answered it to a Christian. What do you like about Jesus? They've never had the opportunity, most people, to just express that thought to somebody else. And when that happens, what happens? You've just heard something probably very beautiful and your spirit has been lifted. But also, if you're not an experienced person, what have you heard? You've actually had an opportunity to say something. We have to give people the opportunity to talk to to Christians about what they think, to testify to Christians, because it builds faith. Builds faith, and we'll come to um, a bit more about that in a moment. John asked me to share what's on my heart, what's been on my heart. It's been on my heart for 40 years, a bit of consistency, not necessarily character, but a bit of consistency. (laughs) And uh, yeah, a bit of consistency. And what I want to offer you today, really, as people who are concerned, yes, many of you are proclaimers, but as also as equippers, I want to offer, if you like, an overall perspective on what, in a sense, we've been learning about um, everyday ministry, And I want to give you two, if you like, little things, perspective also on practices, really, that we've discovered help people be more confident in everyday ministry and witness. And the great thing about them is, on the surface, they have nothing to do with verbal sharing of the gospel on the surface. But they deliver a confidence in people that makes them want to share. And the great thing about it is you can go to a church leader and say, oh, I've got this little thing here and here's a little practice that we could do. And they don't think you're getting at them to run another evangelism training course. (laughs) Sneaky. (laughs) But the other thing I want to address you as people who are members of the body of Christ, um, your unique calling really. Um, And I want to suggest something that for evangelists to be maximally effective... Whoops. (laughs) Whoops. <laughs> I don't want to give that one away. For evangelists to be maximally effective, the rest of the people have to do their job. And what I'm going to suggest to do today is that we as a community need to make sure that we all do the job. This is not necessarily just about you. In fact, it's not about you. Well, before I get in, I just need to give you a bit of personal background. Um, as you haven't heard, I'm, some of you know, I used to work in advertising. So you can trust every word you hear from me today. And uh, every picture you see. I, um, I spent... Uh, I, <laughs> yeah. 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 That's, you know, if, if Jay John had given me a £1,000 to start an evangelistic ministry, that's what I'd have spent it on. 
<laughs> a calling to the rich. Anyway, I don't know how you, some of you have done, a load of you have done all kinds of other jobs and in all kinds of places, but I don't know what you felt about them, I don't know what you about the job. I loved it, I loved the people, I loved the pace, and I loved the, oh, I loved the creativity, and the lunches were just absolutely fantastic. <laughs> but my testimony was this, I was a young Christian, I only been a Christian, really, I became a Christian, went straight into advertising. I saw God, the King of the Universe, do amazing things in that advertising agency, right where I was. I saw him answer prayer on prayer on prayer. I saw him heal someone on the 10th floor of a Madison Avenue advertising agency in the middle of the day and more than once. I saw him draw people to himself over time, over time. I saw him change the heart of probably the most difficult client in the world. Uh, I saw him guide me through career disappointment, character failure and romantic catastrophes with the emphasis on the plural. And uh, what I learned through that time was that God can work anywhere through anyone. And uh, now I work for London, so I went to London School of Theology, uh, not, I'm, I'm not ordained, nobody was mad enough to suggest that. And I wasn't called to overseas ministry, I just went because I fell in love with the Bible, I was discipled and this guy made me fall in love with the Bible and I wanted to learn more. And uh, they wouldn't let me out for nine years, they thought I was too dangerous, so I was vice principal there. And then I was, um, went to London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. And when I'm asked to talk about it, and this is completely germane to this today, I normally uh, use the, the example of probably uh, the most, how can I put this? Um, well, one of the greatest of all post-war British heroes, really. A man guaranteed to save the world once every three years. And that man, of course, is Bond, uh, James Bond. <laughs> Now, Bond, James Bond is not widely acclaimed in Christian circles for reasons which I hope you're aware of. Uh, but um, I suspect that there is not a man in this room who has not at some point imagined himself to be Bond, James Bond. I can see that there are some very deluded people in the room. Too. Um, but, but, I, but I do have some evidence of this. Um, And you've got to be careful. The, the position is open. The position is open. It could be him. And, uh, you know, what you need to know, though, is, of course, that, that John was discipled and, and he got there first. Now, what you also need to know is that not everyone in this room, not everyone in this room wants to uh, save the world. Uh, some people want to rule it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Preach! Preach! <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the truth is that most of us, most of us men are actually not so much like Sean Connery. Most of us are a bit more like sort of Johnny English, sort of. Yes. <laughs> now, Bond does have some qualities worthy of praise, which I want to highlight to you. He's courageous, he's persevering, um, he's resourceful. Have I got the right one up? No, it's the wrong one. There we go. There we go. 
He's uh, resourceful, he's the master of technology and never its slave. He's decisive and he's patriotic. He may, like Samson, sleep with the enemy, but unlike Samson, he never gives away secrets critical to national security. (laughs) He is strong, cultured, witty, intelligent and honest. It's not a bad package. And as one woman once screamed out, he's gorgeous. (laughs) If, If you like that kind of thing, yeah. He's also a male chauvinist pig. An emotional desert and a spiritual black hole. But apart from that, (laughs) when when Bond, James Bond, goes out to save the world, he five things are true of him. He is properly briefed. He is properly trained. He is properly resourced. He is properly supported, and he is commissioned. to do the thing that he has been called to do by his sending agency. Now, here's the zinger question. If we ask the 98% of people who are not in church paid work, how many of those are true of them? How many have been properly briefed, properly trained, properly resourced, properly supported and commissioned for their calling in everyday life? Usually I ask, uh, when I have a a group of uh, so-called lay people, I ask them, how many people have here been prayed for by your local church when you got a new job or you went into a new phase of life? I mean, how many do you think? 90%? 10%? 5%? How many people pray, pray for plumbers? Very, very, very few. Now think about that. This is actually outrageous. At one level, I'm not projecting any guilt on people here. I know there's some churches in the room who do this fantastically well. I know this. And people, but actually, when you think about it, with the body of Christ, we, want, we say we want to send loads of people out into the world to be witnesses for Jesus, but we actually haven't prayed for them for the place they're going to. I haven't said that where you are is significant. That where you are matters to God. That what, this thing you're going to do matters to him. The people around you there matter to him. I haven't prayed for them. Why aren't people confident? We haven't told them it's important. And that's why um, a man called uh, Stott, uh, John Stott, he's the one on the right. (laughs) He founded LICC because he saw with great clarity, some of you are familiar, not so many people familiar with John these days, but unarguably one of the greatest Anglicans of the 20th century, really. Yeah, yeah. He founded LICC because he saw with searing clarity that somehow the people of God were not, on the whole, able to apply the living, wondrous Word of God to the context they found themselves in day by day by day by day. And so he found the Institute, we do lots of things, but primarily we're there to empower Christians to make a difference where they are day by day. We produced a load of resources and we're, and we're there to help church leaders do it and we're helped, there to help theological educators train church leaders to make everyday disciples. That's what we're there to do. Now, I wonder what it looks like before we look at the applications to our own context. I wonder what it looks like. Let me tell you two stories. This one is about Victoria. Victoria's 19 years old when I met her. She's an apprentice hairdresser and she's been doing the job just over a month. It's a very busy salon. There's always something to do and she's uh, always got to do it fast. She's enjoying it, but actually she's been feeling the pressure Three weeks into her job, here's the good news story, her pastor 
commissions her, prays for her into that work. And she said she'd been feeling more at peace since then. So I asked her in a room like this, about 300 people, she wasn't ready for the question. I said, so what difference does being a Christian make to the way you wash someone's hair? Now, I hope that was a Holy Spirit prompting that question because otherwise it's a very nasty question potentially. Quick as a flash, she says, I pray for them as I massage in the conditioner. Now, this praying is an invisible gift to her clients, isn't it? Soothing conditioner for the soul, not just the hair. But behind that prayer lies a whole set of beliefs, convictions. She believes that her daily context in a hairdressing salon is important to God. She believes God is with her. She believes that the actual work of doing this in itself, never mind anything else, is important to God and that it can be done in a distinctive way. She believes God is with her there. She believes that God is alive and the king of the universe can actually move in a hairdressing salon. She believes that God wants to bless her clients and that she can be part of that. She believes that she has a mission field and that she is already in it. She believes in the power of prayer and in God's freedom to respond in his own way and in his own time. She doesn't need to see the results of those prayers. Indeed, this side of heaven, she may not For the most part, she won't, will she? But it's still worth praying. God will be listening to her. Well, that's Victoria, confident in God's purposes for right where she is. And of course, therefore, exhilarated to be walking with him in the hairdressing salon. But she is rare. How many 19-year-olds have been commissioned for their work in a hairdressing salon or wherever it might be? Thelma is not 19. Um, When I discovered her, she was 93 years old and not quite as fleet of foot as she was when she was 89. Uh, She's a member of a small Baptist church, Rainbow Hill Community Baptist Church. And when I say small, um, I mean small. Uh, And uh, she does a few things in the church and she loves the church. She's been there for many, many, many years. Um, But she doesn't really feel like she's got a mission field. And one day she went through something that one of my colleagues did called Life on the Front Line. Her pastor took the whole church through it. That's about 15 people. And she suddenly realised that she had a mission field. She had one all along, but she just couldn't see it. It was the convenience store down the bottom of the road run by an Asian family, a place she went to regularly and so engaged with the people and so on. But then she thought, this is my mission field. And so rain or shine, winter or summer, sleet, snow, she's going to that store. She's ministering to those people. She's blessing those people. And of course, her friend, she's 93 years old and she's not as fleet of foot as once she was. And her friend said, let us do, let us do your shopping for you. You are going to fall over. And then where we will be, you're going to break your hip, you're going to break your leg, you're going to break out. Come on, let it, no, these are my people. And so she goes in there and she loves them and she speaks to the family and of course she gets to know them. Now the family carry her groceries back for her. So, so she goes very slowly. 
maximise the time. And then they you know, put them in the kitchen foyer. All of that fellowship, just because she noticed, I have a place. I had one all along. People don't know they have a place. We're telling them perhaps sometimes not quite the right thing. A while back, I was um, in a place called Liverpool, which is just south of Scotland. <laughs> and uh, I was uh, being driven to, to a speaking engagement by an NHS administrator, happened to be the pastor's wife. And, uh, you know, she told me that, you know, a few years back, the penny had dropped for her and she suddenly realised, this is my place. And then she said this, I've never forgotten this. She said, some people die without knowing the ministry that God has for them. Everyone in this room has a huge privilege. You know the ministry that God has for you. I have to tell you, most people out there don't. How does it happen that nationally and indeed globally, doesn't really matter what stream of the church you're in. 98% of Christians really don't know where their mission field is. Don't know that they can do something for God without doing something special for God. Well, if you're interested in looking at that, how deep and pervasive that is, um, then, you know, uh, there's a little free thing called the Great Divide that looks at all the ways this manifests itself. That's on the table there. That's free. And if you want to get some stories of people in everyday life doing this thing called The One About Two, it's also on the website for free. There's some over there. My conviction as we, as, as I kind of land this in a, if you like, a theological frame is this, that Jesus has given us our mission strategy. The church, since I came back from America, the church has been, you know, all kinds of loads of great ideas. You know, this is what we need to do. This is what we need to do. Church planting, we need to do this, we need to do that. There's Minster Church, there's this church, there's Bungee Jumping Church, whatever church is. It's, it's <laughs> incredible amount of creativity. I believe that Jesus has given us our mission strategy and the only question is, that we have to answer is, was he right? <laughs> now you'd expect to find this in a familiar place. So here it is. And um, we've already had it unpacked uh, for us by Alison, but I'm going to read it again. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And surely I'm with you always to the end, very end of the age. Now, this has been long been a foundational text, but curiously, it's been very rarely applied, uh, fully applied. What tends to happen is a bit gets applied, not the whole thing. First thing to say is that the key verb in verse 19 is not go. That word is a participle. It's a, it basically could be translated as you go. Now, it assumes that we will go, but it's not the key word. As you go, as you walk through life, as you, as you go, the key verb is make disciples. That's the only one that in the Greek is an imperative. Now, everything else is also imperatival, as they say. But the key verb, the thing that Jesus is asking his, his disciples to focus on is 
make disciples. And of course, as you know, this doesn't mean make converts. Praise the Lord for every convert. It doesn't mean make church members or volunteers or local church, you know, for local church activities. It doesn't mean those things. It may include those things, but it doesn't mean those things. It means something like people who are growing more like Jesus in holy character and obedient action, people who are learning to live every aspect of their life in Jesus's ways, wanting God's name to be hallowed, wanting to see his kingdom come where they are, in their hearts, in their homes, in their workplaces, their towns, their gyms, wherever. And so Tony Campolo, I guess we all know who Tony Campolo is, a quiet American. (laughs) God, I've got to say something positive about Americans after that really very vicious attack (laughs) on the American body that we heard earlier. Tony Campolo said this. He said, um, evangelism, evangelism. Do you know that Tony Campolo always speaks with his eyes closed? Have you noticed that? It's a very odd thing, isn't it? I think he has the script written on the inside of his eyelids. (laughs) Evangelism, evangelism is an invitation to join a movement to change the world. (laughs) Amen. That sounds attractive to me. There's a lot of other things and we all know that it's not just that. We have been rescued from the power of sin and the devil and we are going to heaven. Death has been defeated, but we have been invited to join a movement to change the world. Well, I'm excited. If you're 18 now, I'm excited. If you're 20 now, if you're Thelma at 93, now you're excited. Well, a simple definition of disciple we found helpful is someone learning to live the way of Jesus in their context at this time. And uh, the reason why we find it helpful is because it forces us to think about the person's actual context now. Not some theoretical thing. Yes, we do need framework teaching and all that kind of stuff. It forces me to think this person is at home with three kids under five. It forces me to realise, somebody said to me yesterday, they're in a church. I won't tell you which church it is because I have no permission to do that. I'm in a church that every week I know that there's someone in this church who's coming to this church who's been racially abused. That's their context. Or there's somebody at home caring for a very sick person. Or there's somebody with a toxic box, a great job, but a toxic boss. Or there's somebody at uni studying English literature and wondering how do, how do you be a Christian in a seminar where everybody's having a go at truth? Well, they're retired and frankly, they're just bored. That's what it means. Now, when Jesus said, go make disciples to his disciples, I wonder what they, what they heard as opposed to what we might hear. I think they heard at least two things. As you go about living your lives, help people to have the kind of relationship with me that you've had with me. That'd be one thing, wouldn't it? The second thing, as you go about living your lives, go and develop the kind of disciple-making relationships with other, other people that I've had with you. Go make disciples means go and have that kind of relationship. What kind of relationship is that? Well, it's personal, it's ongoing. They eat together, they walk together, they watch Jesus doing things, they get to ask questions, they get to try things themselves. He addresses their character issues don't seek to lord it over others, but be like a child. He cheers them on. I've seen, you know, I've seen saw Satan fall, but don't just rejoice in this. Rejoice in the fact that your name is written in the book of life. He reframes it for them. He wants them to grow. 
Now, very few Christians have had that kind of relationship with someone else, somebody who's further on in the faith. Very few, particularly if they don't go into church paid work. But that's the pattern. Somebody can look in your eyes and say, what's going on? How can I help you? Is there some wisdom? Here's a question. What do you think? Very few. And even fewer have had an experience of like that. When we've, when we've asked sort of anecdotally, you know, in, in a room, said, well, how many people before they were called to church paid work did, did, have had a, someone in their life who's helped them? And these were church leaders. And they said, in that room at that time, it was Manchester, they said, it was about 10% of people, which is actually quite high. Now, actually, I was in a church like that. So I'm not bitter. <laughs> I just want it for everybody else. I was a church like that when I was a young Christian and I've never been in one since. And I was discipled by a guy who worked for the Bell Telephone Company. Changed my life. Jesus is ambitious for people's fruitfulness. He's really ambitious for it, isn't he? And uh, he constantly works to teach and grow his disciples. And we see the same in Paul. This is about one level, the great evangelist, the great missionary. But he wants everyone to come to know Jesus. But that's just the beginning as far as he's concerned. In his mind at the same time is, what does he want for them? He does, you know, here he is in Colossians. He is the one, Jesus is the one we proclaim admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Your evangelists, people come into the church because of your beautiful work and your courage and your boldness and your persistence. Is the church doing its job to finish the job you began? I know many of you disciple people who are evangelists, but is the church doing that for you? Are we encouraging the church in that direction? Now, of course, no pastor can disciple every person in that way. That's why it has to be a culture change. Some have to help people create a church of disciple-making disciples. And we spent 20 years learning how to do this. And we now know, if you're interested, we know we can help people start well. No question. Across the denominations, we've worked with most of them. Elim, Church of England, Methodists, URC, Salvation Army. We've got examples. But it takes time. Too often the church is in a hurry. We don't trust Jesus' strategy. It's just too slow. And you can't digitise it. <laughs> now, many of you know Bishop Graham Cray. He was one of the great mission thinkers of, of our time, really. Culturally astute, Anglican guy, wrote Mission Shaped Church. Very few people would be more affirming of creativity and forms of church and how we do things and getting out there than Graham. He did an amazing job in York of theatre and this and that. Salt mine, came, salt mine came out of that and all kinds of other things came out of his ministry. This is what he said. We worked with him quite a lot. He said, churches must realise... Whoops, sorry. Ooh. Churches must realise that whatever else they are, they must be disciple-making communities. 
That's it. And the question is, can we encourage, can we encourage that where we are? You see, part of the issue, I think, when we're thinking about encouraging people to share the gospel, to overcome all the obstacles that they may feel, some real and some not so real, part of the question is, are we building on shaky foundations? Of course, you can be a witness one second after you've come to know Jesus. You've already got a story. But five years on, do you still have a new story? Do you have another story? Do you have another story? Or are you stuck in the old story? Of course, the story of how I became a Christian, amazing. Really, I can't believe it now. I keep on going back to thinking, oh my goodness, I really, 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 really didn't do anything. <laughs> and uh, let me tell you the story now because um, I've been encouraged to tell the story. It's about my daughter, actually. My daughter is now 26 years old. And my daughter is... Um, uh, she was the house atheist for many years, and then she was the house agnostic. And if you couldn't afford to go to uh, the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics or to go to the Ezra Institute and be tutored by um, Joe Boot, then you could just sit around my dinner table and let her ask you questions and absolutely fill it everything that you say and make it look stupid. <laughs> Welcome to my world. And... Uh, that was my world for about, uh, well, since she was about 11 or 12, just boom, 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 boom. And, uh, you know, oh, blimey, another one I can't answer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, she leaves home. She, she's training as a, a life coach and she's uh, living apart. She's in her apartment one evening. She's flat, rather, it was England. And she's, um, <laughs> she's watching these um, some, some YouTube videos of uh, life coaching. As some of you know, it's quite new agey, quite a lot of that stuff. And she's suddenly looking, looking at this stuff and she's thinking, this is evil. Something triggers and she this is evil. And she just cries out, Jesus, from her belly. And the Lord comes down in power on her. She's on her own. Dang it, I'm not there. <laughs> It's nothing to do with me. <laughs> 15 years of apologetics. <laughs> she leaves home. She's on her own. She's watching YouTube. And the Lord comes down and meets her. And she's in tears. She's, she's given me permission to tell this story. She's in tears. She has no memory of going to bed. But she wakes up in the morning. And she is a born-again, thoroughly converted, evangelical, Bible-believing Christian. Unbelievable. Rico Tice said he has not met anybody so thoroughly converted for a very long time. I mean, there was no, oh, you know, I used to be a kind of liberal, slightly appropriately feminist, young woman, London sort of thing. Boom, she's right in there. Absolutely right in there. I could not believe it. I could... I, why am I telling this story? It's God. Mitch reminded us last night, it's God. Praise, praise him. But the thing is, yeah, the thing is, once you decide that you're going to make disciples, everything changes. This is the key, I think, to creating a body of witnesses. Disciple making is the key to creating witnesses. That's the key. 
the older women suddenly have permission to come alongside the younger women. How often does that happen? It doesn't happen like it's meant to. The older men take younger men under their wings. The brethren used to do it for the men, but not so much for the women. Disciple-making forges intergenerational relationships, which we're thirsting for. All the young people say, I want a mentor. Well, they're in your church. (laughs) Or we're in their church. True disciple-making forges deeper friendships of trust. We need people to stand alongside us. Disciple-making combats superficiality because somebody's asking you the question about your real life. We can all be very interesting about a Bible passage. And disciple-making sharpens people's awareness of God working in their lives because you're in conversation. And that seems to me to be absolutely critical commission to mission because when God is alive in me when God is speaking to me when I see God's when I see God's hands then I have all kinds of reasons for the hope that is within me we know what Peter's talking about the reason for the hope the reason for the hope is that Jesus gave his life for us and he has been raised from the dead but there's lots of other reasons and they happen if we're aware day by day by day And when we see that, we're alive. God is alive. I once came out of uh, a place called Edinburgh, which is uh, in Scotland. Aye. And uh, we were coming up to Stirling and we were past Perth. And uh, and Perth, there's a football team, if you can call it that, called St. Johnston. Aye. Aye. Anyway, so somebody said to me, so... So uh, I wish it was like, why can't we be cheering like they are on Saturday afternoon? Well, first of all, there's not enough drink in the church. <laughs> and they don't, put, they don't serve chips. <laughs> no racial stereotyping going on here at all. Both, both my parents are Scottish, which allows me to say these things, apparently. Anyway, they say, so why don't, why don't we cheer? And I said, well, part of the reason is they're cheering something that just happened. We are right to cheer and we will be cheering as no reminders forever the cross of Christ. But it does not diminish the cross of Christ to say that yesterday Julie had a word for me and she couldn't possibly have known where it came from. Doesn't diminish it. It says the Lord did this and look what's going on and on and on and on and on. And of course, I think I have a hunch that the churches that encourage testimony in gathered worship are likely to be more fruitfully evangelistic than those that don't because every week people are going I spotted God I spotted God I spotted God and then the pastor doesn't have to have every story of what God is doing in the world because the people are bringing the stories of what and it lifts faith that's what the marketplace did for me yesterday oh my goodness look at the courage look at the boldness look at what God is doing and that's what you see in the Psalms let's let's not forget what the Psalms are actually about David wrote 75 psalms. And 57 of those psalms mention enemies. 81% mention enemies. Why is David talking about enemies in the psalms? Well, you know, it's all over the place, actually, David. He says, sorry, let me, um, let me go there. It's all over the place. One of them says... Uh, Blessed be the Lord God, our rock, who trains my hands for battle, my fingers for war. And when I saw that verse, I thought, oh my goodness, I've, I've just gone past it. Why? Holy, do you mean that God, the King of the universe, trained his hands for battle and his fingers for war? War? Why was that? Because he, that was his calling. 
God had made him a dispenser of death to protect his people. David isn't some contemporary singer-songwriter with a, wearing skinny black jeans. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, cool trainers, yeah. With a guitar slung over his back, he, he is a soldier. He's not just facing emotional anxiety and the demons and all that kind of thing. He's a soldier facing real enemies. He's fighting the Philistines, the Amalekites and so on. So why do I miss it? That this actually is real, it's happened. Because it's been spiritualized into the ether. David's Psalms. I mean, you know, you read that one about my fingers for battle and my for war and you go, well, thank goodness that some people make, you know, I have a friend who makes missiles. Not in his garage. Just want you to be clear about that. I'm really glad that his missiles are more accurate than Russian ones because fewer civilians get killed. See, the thing about David's Psalms is when you recognise their enemies, they're about enemies. What's he talking about? Why is David writing about this? Because he has a toxic workplace. They are work songs. So they differ from the songs of Asaph and Korah and Heman. They are... And, and they, we need both. Those are more likely to be songs which have less I and more we and they talk about God and they talk about the nation and, they t- and, and so on. But David is talking about what's happened in my life, the personal stuff. They are testimonies in song. It's embedded in corporate worship. So we don't just lose something when we don't preach the Psalms or when we don't use the Psalms be- because we're losing something about the emotional range that God wants us to express to him, we miss the fact that it's actually about my life. Now, one of the spiritual practices, we've been doing a lot of research on what difference do spiritual practices make, and this is, you know, you expect them to make a difference. Do they make any difference to people's fruitfulness overall? (laughs) Now, historically, evangelical circles, the tradition I come from, there's been a tremendous emphasis, and rightly so, on encouraging people to find uh, a time to engage with God and his word, you know, fuel up with the word of God, amen, reflect on the word and so on. But there's been much less emphasis on reviewing your day, on reflecting on what's happened. People are always asking me, how's your quiet time, how's your Bible and so on. People say, well, no one's asking me, how's your reflection time? Much, 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 much less common. And what we've discovered is that when you give people, and we did this research over three months with a group of people, we gave them false practices, you know, the ones you'd expect, morning practice, sort of breath prayer in the middle of the day, God help me, and that's that stuff. And then something at the end of the day, reflect on the end of the day. What did we discover? We discovered that they became more fruitful. We discovered that they became more attentive to God. Uh, we discovered... Uh, that they were doing their jobs better, that they were more attentive to God's spirit. We discovered, you can't see this, but you can see it on the website. We discovered that they were more likely to share their faith. Some people weren't sharing their faith at all and suddenly the yellow bar goes up. Loads of people in the three-month period don't get to share their faith in their everyday context. Suddenly they're doing this. And then we looked at what was the change over 12 weeks and the change is the red bits. Everything there is more. More awareness of God's presence, more fruit, etc., etc., etc. Have a look at it. And all we've done was said to people at the end of the day, ask God, where was God in my day? What were you trying to say to me? Did I see? Did I notice anything? Very simple questions. And why does that work? Because we're, 
once you start seeing God in your life, you see God in your life. And that's pretty exciting. Suddenly God's been in my day. So he, could be, he was in yesterday, he could be in tomorrow. He was teaching me this yesterday, maybe that's what I've got to do tomorrow. No, it doesn't cost any money, this one, by the way. I don't have a resource to sell you for this one. I have one coming up that you can buy at vast cost. So when we do our evangelism training courses, every, every session begins with a question, like not always the same question, but a question like this. Where have you seen God working in your life recently? Because that's what we want. We want people to be talking about a living God who's with them every day. We don't want just people coming with a program or a programmatic presentation, though those are really important because once you get those down, you can make them your own. I'm not getting at any of that. You see, once it reminds them who is this God that they're talking about, it gives them more to witness to. You see, uh, witness, as, as we've heard, is, is someone who testifies to something they have seen or experienced. And we encourage people, we say to them, you, you know, you don't have to make the case. It's great if you learn how to. You, you don't have to argue against an apologist to tell your story. You don't have to bamboozle a barrister. You don't have to confound a Confucian. You don't have to defeat a determinist. You don't have to disarm a Dawkins. You don't have to flummox a philosopher. You don't have to impress an imam. You don't have to master a modernist. You don't have to nonplus a nihilist. You don't have to perplex a postmodernist. You don't have to rout a rabbi. You don't have to satisfy a scientist, stump a stoic or sway a swami or thrash a theologian or zap a Zoroastrian. All you've got to do is say, this is what Jesus is doing in my life. And of course we do need, and we have to train people to answer the difficult questions, particularly the difficult questions that their particular people might ask them over time. A while back I was in a room with 15 men. It was a men's group, what can you do? And uh, the guy leading it was working in telecoms and uh, he asked this question, what are you good at in the Lord at work? It's a kind of jargony kind of question. Oh, I've only got three minutes left. I better carry on. I won't tell that story. No, no, no. No, no, it's a great story. You can... Re- yeah. Oh. Well, it's not that good a story. <laughs> I'll take it, I'll take it. So anyway, in this room, we asked these 15 men, so what have you got out in the Lord at work? 15 Southern English people, what are they going to go? Everyone's going to get up straight away and go, yeah, I'm really good at this. No, total silence. Well, he'd anticipated it, so he took out a post-it note and said, take out a post-it note, write them. He had all these post-it notes, write down something. So somebody, people write stuff down and they write it down. And then he says, well, he collects them. I said, well, you've written it down, you might as well speak it out. <laughs> Clever. First person to get up, sit down and speak, it was a... Was a well, he said it like this. My name's Kurt. Uh, I'm a policeman. I work uh, in armed protection. Ooh. <laughs> I uh, defend uh, the Prime Minister at number 10 Downing Street. Oh, yeah. uh, it's a pretty macho team I'm part of, probably. And uh, over the years, there's been quite a lot of conflict and I've found that I'm quite good at bringing people back together. 
And that's pretty much how he said it. And then the silence in the room. And then after this awkward, very awkward Southern English silence, you know how we hate it, somebody says, you've got a ministry of reconciliation. And this guy goes, I've got a ministry of reconciliation. Except he's not that kind of guy, but that's, his smile was the width of the Thames. And it's like, oh, and then somebody says, blessed are the peacemakers. What's going on? The people of God were noticing. He had a sense of what was going on. I'm doing something, but he, he couldn't name it. And when somebody validated it from the Bible, suddenly I've been doing ministry. Suddenly God has been working through me. Oh my goodness, praise God. His confidence went whoosh. It's the power of biblical validation and the power of community validation. The reason we, we witness to one another and share stories with one another is because it does both things. People see things in our stories that we never saw. They hear things in what we say. Oh, that helps me with this. So we help people to read their Bibles through whole life lenses and we help them to read their lives through biblical lenses. Their lives through biblical lenses. Well, one of the things we've found is that lots of people aren't, aren't very confident. So I'm, and we realise that most people don't think they're very fruitful. And one of the reasons for that is they think there are only three marks of fruitfulness. I'm going to scuttle to this, so... There were some really, really good stories, Jay, John, if you want to know in that bit that I'm missing out. If you like, to give me another year. <laughs> and the three marks of fruitfulness we discover that most people think about are these. Am I volunteering in a local church? Absolutely vital to do. We have to serve the local community. Praise the Lord for all those who do. Some form of direct social action and an evangelistic conversation. Now, if those are the three marks of fruitfulness that people are carrying around in their hearts and their heads, on an average day, the average person is going to fail because they're not volunteering on that day when they're in the classroom or the uni lecture or dropping the kids at school or at work. They're not volunteering that moment. These are all good, by the way, but please don't hear it any other way. And they're probably not at that moment doing direct social action because they're doing something else. And they may have a direct evangelistic conversation. I mean, sometimes I had loads because I was in the kind of work where you travel with lots of people. So it was relatively easy, but lots of people don't. If that's the mark, I just failed. So we realised that we had to give people an understanding that biblical fruitfulness is much bigger than that so that they could see that God was working in their lives. And these are the ones we came up with. Model godly character. Is that fruit? Fruit of the Spirit, is that fruitfulness for God? When somebody does that, is that a witness to the people around them? Yes, it is. When they do good work in the power of the Spirit, is that a witness? When they minister grace and love, they get somebody a cup of coffee, they, they listen to them, they go to them when their bosses pull them out and help them. When you mould culture, you can mould culture by putting a light, a tea light on the table at dinner. You can mould culture by stopping someone gossiping. You can mould culture in all kinds of ways. Being a mouthpiece for truth and justice sounds grand, doesn't it? But every day people tell lies. Every day people gossip. And if you stop, come against that, truth and justice. And then being a messenger for the gospel. When people see this, their lives change. I've got to tell you this. The DVD that goes with the group work that goes with it is literally life-changing for lots of people because they suddenly realise that God has already been working in them. And if God can work me in this area, I can work in that area. And their testimony widens. And the group of people suddenly know all kinds of things about one another that they never knew before. So I commend this uh, fruitfulness on the front line to you uh, as a way of building confidence for mission. 
and for verbal sharing. Um, it's included, but it doesn't do what you do and must continue to do. Uh, these are, this is normally nine credits free when you buy this for eight, and this is normally 10, so it's a pretty good deal. <laughs> one day only, and this book is called Thank God It's Monday. It's about workplace. Most people have never read one on work. Most people, a lot of people work. Um, it's in its fifth edition. My mother thinks this is the best book ever written. And my mother is always right. <laughs> our mission and awareness and confidence is fueled by reflecting on what has been happening in our lives through a biblical lens and then telling someone else. And it can also just be a Christian. Well, there's more to be said about the content of the gospel. Do we have a whole life gospel to share? Do people know that 10 tenths of their life is significant to God? What I want to say then as we close is whole life disciple making is critical. Not just to the demonstration of the scope and power of the gospel in everyday life, but to the everyday sharing of the gospel with the billions who don't know Jesus. Jesus said whole life make disciples. Whole life disciple making is the key to effective evangelism and I would dare to say effective evangelistic equipping. We have a whole life gospel. It's a beautiful, 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 amazing thing. When a housewife realises that she can do the housework to the glory of God and how it fits into his mission day by day, that is an incredibly liberating thought. We have a whole life gospel, but we're not necessarily discipling people into it. We have a whole life gospel, but we're not empowering people to share that whole life gospel, perhaps. So Jesus, our glorious Lord, who created all things, who created toucans and bananas and elephants, who changed water into Chateau Neuf du Pape, who, and surely with a twinkle in his eye, the Lord who ate and drank with publicans and sinners and held a little girl's dead hand and said, Talitha kumi. The Lord who wept at the tomb of Lazarus, the Lord who grilled fresh fish on the beach for his tired fishermen friends, the Lord who died to redeem the whole cosmos and every aspect of our lives, to give us abundant life Monday to Sunday. The Lord who graciously sends us, who graciously involves us, his people, in his mission and graciously promised to send the Holy Spirit to cheer us on, the beautiful joy-bringing Holy Spirit to strengthen, empower, hold us, guide us. This Lord who after three days in the grave rose from the dead and told his disciples how he wanted them and us to continue his work. This Lord said, as you go, make disciples of all nations. The only question we and every apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher and evangelist and every church member has to answer is, was Jesus right? been listening to the Evangelists Conference podcast. Visit evangelistsconference.com to find out more.